0: This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order
1: Podcast, and these are their stories.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a live recording for episode 63 of the Paw Order podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Camille Labchuk, joined today by my other two co-hosts. That's the first time I've been able to say joined by my other two co-hosts, Jessica Scott-Reed and Peter Sankoff. Welcome, Peter and Jess.
1: Yay, this is so exciting. I- I'm finally happy to have uh, Peter on with me. This should be fun.
0: It will be fun, Jessica, especially when you move the mic a little bit away from your
1: oh, face. Very thank lovely. you. See, I'm still a newbie. I'm a, I'm a rookie. I'm a rookie.
0: It's not the same without a comforter over your head, but that's an in-joke. No one knows about that except for our producer, Shannon Milling, who's laughing as she hears that.
1: I think it's yeah. actually like a thing on YouTube where it tells you that if you're recording podcasts, you have to put a comforter over your head. So I don't think it's that in-joke as, as you think it is.
0: Yeah, well, I'm not putting a comforter over my head like ever. That's just never going to happen. Camille, we are back again at the conference. Look at that. Well, we're sort of back again. This feels like I'm sitting in my office. It feels, oh, wait, I am sitting in my office. That's probably why it feels that way.
2: Strange, isn't it? Yeah, I know. It's really hard to imagine that we did this for the first time only about a year ago. And here we are again, but not really here we are. Um, it was there not we are. the first
0: time, Camille. Not the first time. We did this for a second time a year ago.
2: Well, this, this that was the first time with poll- the student conference, which was Correct. super this fun. This is our
0: third live pawn Order, though.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's
0: right. Very hard. exciting. Very exciting. And look at us all together, all three of us.
2: Yeah, for a second
0: so- there, I thought I had two Camille lab checks, but that's been repaired.
2: Jessica's changed her name on Zoom, so there's only one Camille and there's one Jessica now, so lots of rookie mistakes.
0: There can only be one Camille, trust me. There can only be one Camille. Thank God.
2: (laughs) Well, we're so excited to be here with all of you today and just really delighted that you so many of you have joined us for this conference. I really wish we were in person because there's no substitute for that. but. I don't know. I'm I'm digging the Feedloop platform so far. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to check around the back end, but there's all kinds of cool opportunities and ways for us to engage. You can even have like one-on-one video chats with people via Feedloop. So I think it's going to be a cool conference all the same. But of course, I'm sure at least for Peter, the highlight is going to be Pawn Order.
0: I'm only here for the Pawn Order. That's it. I'm just, as always, I am uh, looking forward. You know, I heard... I heard this conference was going to be the first time they were selling pawn order t-shirts, Camille. That's what I heard. And then I heard there's no actual market. So once again, my dreams of pawn order t-shirts were dashed. If only if only I knew someone with the power to make that dream a reality. If only, right, Camille?
2: If only, Peter. The problem is that every time we ask people if they want pawn order t-shirts, like one person emails, and it's like, yeah, I do. And the rest is just crickets. So I'm Listen. I'm just not really feeling the market.
0: People out there, you've heard what Camille has to say. Like, what I need from you is support for Pawn Order T-shirts. And by the way, I should point out, Camille, that my Pawn Order T-shirt, which was an unofficial Pawn Order T-shirt, right? It was unofficial. Not to critique it. It was beautifully done. But it was unofficial. It's starting to fray a little from the wash, right? So, like, the only Pawn Order T-shirt in existence is in danger of going the way of the wash, you know, the wash golems.
2: Jessica, how much do you want to bet that Peter has worn his Pawn Order T-shirt every single day during the pandemic?
1: <laughs> I mean, all I, I'm th- all I'm thinking is that I need one of those T-shirts. Like you have how to do turn,
0: I- you have to turn fifty. That's the requirement. When you turn fifty, Jessica, you get a Pawn Order T-shirt. It
1: oh was gosh, my Let, let's hope. To Peter let's hope year. that the Pawn Order podcast continues on until I'm fifty. Because if that's the case, this is a very successful podcast. <laughs>
0: I know, <laughs> I know. But thank you for pointing out that I'm the old man. I'm, I'm now like the grandfather of the Pawn Order show. You,
1: <laughs> pe- you pointed, it, you out, pointed it out, Peter. You yeah. pointed it out, Peter.
2: This is great. I've got someone thinking up with um, me against Peter now. It's just never happened. Yeah, before. I feel like I'm this so dynamic happy. is
1: definitely working. This, di- I like it.
0: Yeah, this isn't working. <laughs> we need to change this up.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, a few things to get us going. Um, first of all, we welcome everyone. We're so excited. We are live recording this session on Friday, September 11th from the Canadian Animal Law Conference. And uh, this session is going to be available by video for anyone to access if you're a registrant of the conference in the back end of our platform for 60 days after the event. So if you want to check this out or check out any of the other sessions, you can still do so if you're listening to this on your podcast uh, device, you'll still be able to check out this or any other videos from the conference. And uh, there might even be a special discount for post event purchases. So that's exciting. And I also want to say a special thank you to our conference sponsors. We've got the Brooks Institute for Animal Rights Law and Policy. It's our platinum sponsor. I encourage everyone to sign up for their weekly digest at thebrooksinstitute.org. It's a fantastic newsletter that goes out every week with all the latest updates in animal law from the U.S. mostly, but lots of stuff that's relevant to Canadian folks as well. Uh, The Clark Foundation for Animal Rights is our gold sponsor. Uh, They've been especially great helping us out with the student conference. And our silver sponsor is the Ontario SPCA Inhumane Society. So round of applause for all of our sponsors. We're so thankful to have you. All right. So Peter and Jess, what have you two been up to? I'm still in PEI, enjoying the final days of the summer. How's Edmonton? How's Winnipeg?
0: Go ahead, Jess.
2: Oh, I mean,
1: I assumed the guy from Edmonton would want to go first, but sure. Um, Yeah, busy over here in Winnipeg. Um, It's been a busy work week for me. Uh, Impossible Foods is coming to Canada, so there's lots of discussion going on with that. Um, It's exciting, and probably by the time this podcast is published, I will have a a column out for the Toronto Star expressing my opinions about Impossible Foods, so uh, keep an eye out for that.
2: Oh, I got to say one thing I'm super excited about is getting back to Toronto and being able to eat impossible meat in different stores because it's apparently in all the restaurants there. And oh, I can't wait.
0: Yeah, let, let's focus on what's important here. So I have now, I've now tried all of them just by virtue of travel. So I've had the Beyond and the Impossible and I've even had the the McVegan, which is a different version of the, uh, I think they call it the Incredible Burger or something, the one in Germany. So I've had all those. But I, I've always been kind of a fan of the Impossible Burger. I actually think the Impossible Burger is just, it, it has a, a different mouthfeel. Um, if I have one issue with the Beyond Burger and I really like it, but it's, it's, it, it's too gushy. It, uh, it It's a little more gushy. And I find the Impossible Burger has a slightly different consistency and flavor for that matter. So I had the Impossible Burger a couple of times, most recently at a Burger King and uh, I think it was in Montana. And uh, back, back in the days when we were allowed to cross the border. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly excited to the Impossible Burger coming to Canada.
1: And I think it's actually all of the products, uh, not just the burger itself. So I know that the promo for this week was that they supplied it to a bunch of hoity-toity, actually meat-centered restaurants. And in fact, I interview Chef David McMillan from Joe Beef about his experience working with the product uh, and how much he liked it. So it's, uh, it's exciting to see that it's being given to restaurants that normally are not serving this type of food.
0: Yeah, that was the, that was the model for the Beyond Burger too. As I recall, I think the Beyond Burger went first into the restaurants and only later onto the shelves.
1: Yeah, and I think this is actually even sort of more upscale. I think the first Beyond Burgers we ever had were from A&W, right? This is like-
0: No, no, that's not correct. Maybe maybe just in
1: Winnipeg. (laughs) Winnipeg.
0: Possibly, yeah. But I think that's right. I think that's the way it worked because I remember that the Beyond Burgers went international first and they were in all the big restaurants, but the Impossible Burger- Thing The Impossible Burger was only in the upper level restaurants in the U.S. and then eventually went into every Burger King. But I'm sure like that's exactly what's going to happen here. For the first little while, my guess is the Impossible Burgers will only be available at Joe Beef style restaurants. But eventually, I'm guessing one of the chains jumps on board. Yeah. So
1: the way they're doing it is actually that all the restaurants have access to it across Canada by next month. And then uh, before the end of the year, it'll be in grocery stores. So they are doing it just the same way. It's smart. It's smart. I'm excited. I've never tried it. Exciting stuff. All right. Well,
2: at the risk of this turning into a vegan food review podcast, which is usually how we start things off, which I don't mind, but um, let's let's get down to business here. So the way this is going to work today, we've got about 50 minutes left for this and we're planning on doing it like we did last year. So we're hoping for a Q&A session first. So anyone who's a participant here can send us a question. You do that through the Q&A box there. Um, so Jump down to the, I think the bottom of your screen, and there's a place for you to type in your question, and we'll take questions about any of your animal law issues uh, that you want to chat about, or anything else about animal ro- uh, animal law rights or policy. We're here to chat. Sure,
0: and also like anything about the podcast is fair game. So like if you wanted to ask how I keep my good humor in light of Camille's constant you know prodding and poking at me, like then. Feel free to ask that and I will do my best to answer.
2: Vice versa for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anything, anything. In fact, I'll be perfectly honest. Those are my favorite types of questions. So like any questions about the podcast and the shenanigans that go on behind the scenes, because like Paw and Order HQ, as we know, Camille is like, it's a it's a crazy place where there's always fun things going on. <laughs>
1: All right. Okay. Sure. <laughs> I, and if, and if, if, <laughs> I don't know what if, he's talking about. <laughs> if anybody wants to know what it's like for me to jump into this fun little, there you go, situation, <laughs> you can ask yeah. that too. I have feelings yeah. to.
0: We like all these questions. So for this to work, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to need some of those questions from you. So don't be shy. We want to hear some of you uh, sending in our, your questions, certainly about any area of animal law. This is one of our few chances to spout off the cuff, off the cuff opinions. We did that last time Camille. Do you remember? It was like, it was essentially, it was like, it was impossible to anticipate what was coming. So we are going to not spend all the time on Q and A though. I mean, We'll see how many Q&As we actually get, but we're not going to spend all the time on Q&A. We're also going to do some, uh, we have some trivia planned for later, don't we, Camille?
2: We do have some trivia planned, which is, which is going to be fun stuff. And, uh, you know, why don't we actually start with a trivia question or two just to get things warmed up because the Q&A is a little slow, you guys. If you want this to be a good podcast, you've got to start writing it. All right. Well, if you've listened to the, po- oh, wait, we've got one. Oh, this is a great question. Oh, yeah, it's in the chat. It's in the chat there. Oh,
0: I thought it was coming in the Q and A.
2: Oh, either way works, I guess. Either way works. Okay, so this is from Clara Franklin. Thank you, Clara, for the question. Clara wonders, how do we as activists or lawyers walk the line between abolition versus incremental welfare reform? Good awesome. question. That's a great question.
1: You want to start, Jess? Oh, yeah, ask the non-lawyer, sure. Um, no, but I, it's a good question as an activist. Um, and, you know, even in my work as a journalist, um, it is a fine line. And I, I seem to kind of bounce on both sides of it sometimes, depending on the topic. Um, there are issues regarding uh, welfare reform that can't be ignored, that it would be detrimental to the animals if we did ignore it. Um, it would be a missed opportunity if I didn't put it in newspapers. Um, so I think, I think it's a case-by-case basis. Keeping abolition as your guiding light, but uh, keeping one foot in the real world uh, where sometimes welfare reform um, is also necessary. That's my opinion. I'm, I'm sure there's lots of different opinions on this. Yeah.
0: Go ahead. You want to go next, Camille? Oh, that's OK.
2: Yeah, sure. I'll jump in. Yeah, I mean, and that's a great question. And it's something that um, I know we think about a lot because nobody likes to see animals hurt in any way. So the, I, you know, what's underlying the question, I guess, is is it detrimental to be advocating for anything short of full stop ending the use of animals? And um, where I've settled on with, uh, for me personally, is that it absolutely is. And I think if you take a historical look at how social change happens and you look at other social change movements and how um, activists in those movements have accomplished what they've done, such as improving um, civil rights, um, abolishing slavery, um, getting the vote for women, there's all kinds of um, historical examples that we can look to for guidance on what works. It's almost never the case that you're just able to convince somebody of the moral righteousness of your position and get reforms put in place right away. Typically, the way that larger scale reforms that end a certain practice come about is by gradually chipping away at the paradigm that says it's acceptable to do something. And there's a conversation, too, there. So, for instance, I I think about this a lot. Let's just use the example of um, anti-slaughter activism by the Animal Safe Movement outside of slaughterhouses. So the Animal Safe Movement is a group of people who are there to point out that we shouldn't be slaughtering animals and that they suffer during this process. And they point toward the moral and ethical problems with farming animals for food. But one thing that they also do along the way is expose people to the conditions that animals are enduring inside transport trucks. And they do this by posting videos on the Internet that they film um, inside those trucks. And um, we often see violations of animal transport laws. Um, a group like Animal Justice is able to enhance uh, that Um, public discourse by doing things like filing legal complaints against the transporting company for violations of the animal transport laws. We're able to amplify that message and remind people, again, why these are problems. Now, is getting charges against the trucking company going to end all animal use tomorrow? No, it's not. But is it still a worthwhile goal uh, or a strategy? I think it is because it advances you further down the path toward exposing and educating people about what's going on and inspiring them to make change. In the same way that I would say that advocating for stronger transport laws to protect those animals on trucks is also important. As Jess pointed out, there's animals who are suffering in horrific ways right now, and we can't end all of that tomorrow, but we can improve things. And improving things for even just one animal can still be worthwhile. So if Canada, for instance, adopted climate-controlled transport trucks to avoid frostbite and overheating and heat stroke that animals are currently experiencing by the millions, I have a hard time saying that's not a good thing for those individuals. Individual animals, while we work toward the broader goal.
0: Yeah, so I've thought about this a lot, and I thought about it so much. I wrote an academic article about it in 2012 that has sort of informed my philosophy about this going forward. Um, because I I struggled also with the idea of whether um, it was worthwhile to um, address certain types of incremental welfare changes, and um, my, my view is that I, I think. To a certain extent if you say one or the other or balancing one against the other I think it sets up a bit of a false paradigm and what I came to the conclusion was that I, I did conclude that for me um, dealing with every welfare initiative was not a productive use of time nor did I necessarily think it was part of a way uh, going to, to really advance things for animals going forward but what I did think but 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 at the same time I'm not an abolitionist full scale like I didn't feel that that was as an effective way, even if I think that personally, it's the correct result at the end of the day, it didn't strike me as a, a tactically smart way to move things forward, nor one that I think the legal system would, ex- would accept. I don't think the legal system works that way. I know enough about the law to know that you're not gonna go from point A to point B. That's just gonna change things radically. So what I w- what I wrote about in this article was about the idea of creating new forms of discourse, because it seems to me that we're still a long way away from actually reaching a point where we're even, you know, we can see abolition off in the distance. And the question for me in looking for legal reform and activism was always pretty similar to what Camille said. Did I think that the particular action or legal change would set the stage for more meaningful change going forward? Or did I feel that it was a dead end in the way in which it worked and that it was simply an issue in and of itself? And while I tend to agree with Camille that it's true that any animal thing is better and any, any time you can help even one animal. It's a good thing. I wasn't always convinced that that was the best or most productive use of my time. And I always felt that the things that were the most useful going forward were changes that tended to improve the structural discourse around animals. And I say structural discourse because honestly, I still feel that we're quite a ways into the future before we have the right sorts of legal platforms available to really make any substantive change. Right now, we're sort of forced to tinker around the margins. And I think that's, that's very detrimental to animals. But to me, trying to come up with legal routes that have the potential for more groundbreaking change in the future is is what is at the core of the work that I try and do.
1: Yeah, sorry, I'll, I just wanted to add one more example. I thought uh, when you were talking about the animal transport, improving animal transport laws, another example where we can talk about, uh, you know, welfare reform that, is I think extremely important that isn't being done that I, that I work for, towards uh, is improving conditions inside barns regarding fire uh, prevention and detection. Uh, That's another issue. Barn fires is such a huge problem. Uh, And if you were to take an abolitionist abolitionist approach towards it, we would say, you know, that, you know, the animals just shouldn't be there. The barns should be shut down. uh, You know, we just shouldn't have them there at all. So we have to recognize the fact that there are animals suffering extremely due to barn fires and that working towards having fire detection and prevention um, is an important thing to do.
2: I agree with everything that Peter and Jess have said. And I'll, I'll add one more thing, which is that um, I guess it's a bit of a caveat, which is I don't think it's always beneficial to pursue every type of welfare reform. Um, some reforms may actually be detrimental or they may not really advance a cause. So it's important to look carefully at what's actually being discussed. Um, let me give an example. I think that there's a trend toward criminalizing um, types of behaviors towards animals that are that are considered traditional, quote unquote, animal cruelty offenses. Um, and, you know, the best example I can think of, of this in Canada is a move in recent years by, uh, some politicians to make it an extra, extra offense to, to harm or injury a, a police dog or a military animal who's engaged in quote, the line of duty. Um, this is a type of reform that I don't know if it's even really properly categorized as a welfare reform, but it's a type of reform where I'm not sure that it threatens the underlying premise of, um, it being acceptable to use animals in a certain way. I think it actually reinforces the idea that some animals have more value than others based on their value to humans. So if we're talking about dogs used for the military or police, or horses used for the military or police, and we afford them enhanced protections just because of their value to us, I don't know that that really uh, seeks to undermine the, the premises that we, we're all trying to attack as animal lawyers. I think it actually might reinforce those. So. Okay, some more questions are coming in. I'm going to do my best to get to them. Um, Here's an easy one. Jessica uh, asks, is there a group for animal law lawyers in Canada to make contacts on Facebook or otherwise? I find it hard to know what others are doing. Um, that is a great question. I don't know that there's a formal organization. Uh, local provinces have their own bar associations, and in several of those provinces, there are animal law bar associations. So British Columbia, for sure. Manitoba now. Ontario had one for a while, but doesn't currently. So that might be a good place to get involved. I also think conferences like this are a great opportunity to connect with others. And I encourage you just to chat with as many people as you can through the virtual platform and, and try to make friends that way. Um Kristen's asking what are some good organizations to get involved in as a law hopeful undergrad student. Well, I'll just um, you know, name a few. There there's not a huge number of animal rights groups that work in this country that have paid staff. So it's relatively easy to find them. But um, some that we know well and work with well. So local SPCs and humane societies are often good for that. Humane Society International Canada, great organization, World Animal Protection. Um, There's Humane Canada. Sometimes there's local issue campaigns in the city that you might live in. So trying to get, um, you know, a municipal ban on cat and dog sales, for instance, there might be a group that pops up to do that work on an ad hoc basis. So I will look around you and see what's happening and try to get involved that way. Next question from Lance. Lance says that uh, he points out that Canada did not score well on the Animal Protection Index 2020. <laughs> Lance wonders which specific goal should Canada focus on? How can we influence Canadian policy?
0: Oh, good God. Well, I think we are, I mean, the last part is the easiest. I mean, how can we influence Canadian policy by continuing to develop uh, scholarship and and advocacy on important issues that matter? That I believe is true. I still think we are at a phase, believe it or not, when we are not taken with the seriousness that we deserve. And I I say that because you you can just witness, Camille will be able to speak to that as much as anybody because she's the one who, when she speaks out about these matters, ends up Taking barbs for six weeks on Twitter from everybody and their mother. Um, and I think the ability to influence Canadian policy continues to come from gaining legitimacy um, in the halls of power. And that is something that is done um, over time by making your issue uh, more sophisticated. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not new or revolutionary thinking to say that every activist movement goes through these stages and we're still as well as we've done and as much as we've grown as an organization and frankly as a wider movement um, influencing policy requires you to be taken more seriously so to be honest as the answer might not be particularly exciting but the answer is to keep doing what we're doing at least in the last part of that question
2: and I guess I would add to that in terms of which specific goals you can to focus on. Um, you know, when you think about the overall state of animal welfare in this country or any other country, it's, it's hard to think about that without delving into the numbers of animals used in different areas and trying to think about where the most suffering is. And overwhelmingly, the most obvious suffering is in the farming industry. In Canada, we killed 834 million animals for food last year. That's just land animals. That's not even fishes. Because their lives are measured in tons, they're not even counted as individuals. And we have no regulations at the federal or provincial level mandating how those animals should be treated. And uh, you know, for me, and I'm not sure this squares up pre- uh, precisely with the Animal Protection Index, which is a great tool issued by World Animal Protection. Um, but for me, I think that when we think about where we've got the potential to make this country a much better country for animals, it um, starts with farming. It's really hard to ignore. It's simply those numbers. OK, next question from Stefan Kohut. Stefan says, I liked Peter's comment about working towards changing the structural discourse on animals. Peter, can you give an example of your work in this area and the results? And I would also love to hear from Jess about this, uh, given her work to, st- to change the media and the public discourse about animals. Sure. And I mean,
0: it's, it ties into what I'm talking about tomorrow, which is NFAC codes and uh, the way in which those are influencing both policy making and our thinking about animals. So for example, you know, It's when you're looking at a particular change, so NFAC as an organization, I I have a lot of issues with the way in which they do things. But what I found was the codes that they put together, I'm less interested in what they say about particular welfare measures. So that would be a welfare measure, like they allow this much more space for this or this much more space for for this. And I look at those codes as an instrument of law as an opportunity for discourse, because that's what I think they are. And I think um, trying to create different structures to provide that discourse is really important, which is why my work has focused less on aspects of a particular code reform and more about making whether or not we can find a way to make um, avenues like NFAC or any other avenues in which we're trying to advance law reform um, to be more productive spaces for the type of discourse that will make real change. And that's what I think is kind of useful um, about these things, code processes, particular animal welfare initiatives. I don't look at them so much as they are going to change X though it would be nice if they changed X, and more as can they provide an opportunity for us to discuss X in a way that will hopefully advance the possibility of making more dramatic change in future. So when I look at legal cases, or code cases or whatever or legislative reforms i always look at it through the same lens like what is this going to do to provide greater stepping stones in future because it's always the case that when you're looking in the here and now the legal reforms that we're talking about tend to be smaller they tend to be they tend to be more more narrow in nature so i'm more looking at well what are they going to do is this an avenue that's going to allow for public discourse about these issues in a way that could lead to more dramatic change in future because frankly, I think we're looking at the long-term struggle, not a short-term one.
1: Yeah, so uh, in my work, it's we're working more with changing cultural discourse uh, around animals. Um, and the way that I like to do that in, in my work in the mainstream media, uh, most importantly, is centering animals, uh, which is something you don't see a lot being done by reporters. So In my work in opinion sections, um, I get to do sort of more of what I want to do. And in that way, I can center the animals. I can make their story, their plight, their suffering uh, the main part of the narrative. And another important part of that is the way in which animals are um, discussed, the language used to refer to them, uh, pronouns, discussing animals as they and them and he and her um, is important. to try and bring some personhood, which is another uh, idea that I think is being discussed this year at the conference as well as we did last year, uh, bringing in personhood to animals. Um, so putting them on this sort of uh, new Pedestal, for example, that really hasn't been done in the past, and really isn't done by a lot of other writers or reporters or professionals in in this realm at all. Uh, so, changing the way the animals are positioned within public and cultural discourse to open the eyes of the public in the way that they see them.
2: Very important. Okay, lots of questions coming in now. Thank you, guys. This is great. Fiolita wonders. Uh, how you argue with other lawyers or other people when they say that, why should I defend for the animals when there are still so many people suffering because of human rights cases? Great question. We hear this all the time, usually from people who have closed their eyes and don't want to acknowledge animal suffering and prefer to try to come up with arguments like this to avoid addressing it directly. Um, you know, I always say it's not one or the other. It's Start both. The term and it's-
0: False premise. That's how you start. Yeah, sorry.
2: Well, exactly. It's a false premise. It's 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 not a fight between those two sets of interests. Advancing rights for animals advances rights for humans too. And the more you delve into this area, the more you realize that it truly is all connected. Uh, you know, just the the most recent high profile example that we can pull out from Canada. very obviously, um, slaughterhouses. Slaughterhouses have become a COVID-19 hotspot. And, uh, you know, back when the pandemic first hit us, slaughter workers in Alberta in particular were getting sick and even dying from COVID-19 because they were working in terrible conditions at slaughterhouses, which are well known for abusing not just animals, but workers as well. And I think that any efforts that you make to address animal rights and human rights uh, mutually reinforce each other and that we have to look at it as an everything lens, not one or the other.
1: There's also a lot to be said about um, the environmental aspects of these arguments too, that um, so much of what we talk about in our food choices uh, and reducing or abolishing uh, industrial animal agriculture uh, helps humans in the long run. You know, the studies done that talk about world hunger and how these things can be uh, aided with a transition to plant-based diets and away from industrial animal agriculture. So uh, I get a lot of this on Twitter, of course, with the people that fight with me uh, and it's so much, you know, how could you be caring about animals when there's, you know, hungry people on the planet. And there's really, really great arguments for how uh, one helps the other.
0: I, I would go further though. I mean, I, I, even if one didn't help the other, I, like, I wouldn't care. Um, I would use the, the number. I, I mean, I would say, I would just, I would say to them, the premise is so false because it's assuming that one thing, um, um, not only is divorced from the other, but the one is it has an inherently greater value than the other. Yeah, and that's I think very that's true. part of the problem that we, we are dealing with with animals, like this idea that human life is so much more valuable that they're not even on the same playing field. Well, even if I accept that human life is more valuable, that's a premise, okay. Even if I accept that, that doesn't mean that animal life has no value. And we are talking about billions. That's the number I would give. Billions of animals suffering in more horrendous ways than you can ever imagine. So I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay what's happening to human rights. I mean, I'm a criminal lawyer. I'm concerned about uh, jail reform and things that are going on in the prisons. And I could go on at length about people suffering from mental health issues. That doesn't make the suffering of the animals any less real nor does it make it any less valuable. So like the idea that I have to do one or the other is just to me a completely false premise. I don't, I don't even care if they interact. You know?
1: You're right, you're right, Peter. That's It's an exact example of speciesism uh, that, that we, we can fall into, it's very true.
2: And I'll just add one more point to that, which is if the, if you want to quantify this disparity in some way, you could look at the number of organizations out there working for human rights and the amount of dollars that they can bring to bear on that fight and compare that to the number of charities working for animal protection. Um, I, I don't know if this is an accurate stat vis-a-vis Canada, and I haven't updated this, but my recollection last time I heard this is that less than 1% of charitable donations go towards animal protections. And comparatively, um, is just such a small piece of the pie compared to human rights issues. So, you know, it's not like, um, <clears throat> it's not like there's a massive disparity in the direction of animals. It's, it's in the other direction. True. Uh, okay, Bob Clark.
0: Can I just say, can I just say one more? Sorry. This is just such a great question. So thank you for raising it. I just wanted to say like when I started out in this like 20 years ago, like, (sighs) It wasn't like human rights issues are getting some short shrift. Like that's the other thing that's just like, I, like there was no one doing this. And to be honest, relatively speaking, there's still almost no one doing this. If you think about an absolute number. So like the idea that the weakest and most vulnerable (laughs) beings in our care that are like, we have this trust relationship to should not get representation is just, it's kind of silly to me. It doesn't really, that's why that argument, while, I mean, I'm not criticizing the person who raises the question. I think that's the arguments you get, but I just, those arguments are so spurious, by the way, like many that get dealt with animals, they're very dismissive. They're not well thought out and they're easy to get around. There are tough questions too, but not those.
2: Yeah, and I feel like if you want to see some of those um, ridiculous, spurious, spurious arguments, follow Jess on Twitter, because even more than me, <laughs> Jess gets it from all sides, from the farmers, from just the general public. and oh, sure I, I, I get, get
1: it. I get it because I, I bring it on. I get it because I'm asking for it and I'm OK with Listen, that.
0: Listen, <laughs> Jess, I have to feed my family. And this is this is this, Oh, sorry.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I not you into, too, Peter. I turned too.
0: into a liberal MP for a minute there. Oh my but you God.
1: know, what, I'll tell you, those fights on Twitter, I have learned so much. Uh, they are showing me their hands every day. I see all the arguments every day. So thanks to those farmers out there, showing me exactly what I should be writing about in the Global Mail.
0: And they've yeah, got like a pair of deuces, a four, a seven, <laughs> and like a, a jack. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah,
2: don't be afraid to get into those discussions with people because you learn something about how people respond to this and how to address those points and bring them onto your side. Okay, so Bob Clark wonders, uh, Well, Bob, first of all, agrees with your remarks, Peter, about welfare versus abolition and feels that we're too often working at the fringes of the core issues we need to attack. And our resources are so minimal versus big agra, milk, animal research groups. And Bob feels that we need to be much more strategic in our work and form better partnerships across animal rights and animal welfare organizations. Anyone have thoughts on this?
0: Well, that sounds like more your ballpark than mine, Camille, in terms of strategic groups. And I'm just a law professor. I'm not, uh, but, I, but I will take on the bigger picture in terms of the working on the fringes versus the areas we need to attack. I think that is something we get lured into as every group. I think that's very easy because like something comes up, a cause. And, you know, I think Camille and I had talks in the early days when, when I was starting an organization. It's very easy to get lured into the issue du jour and get pulled in because the truth of the matter is... It's like animals are treated terribly in every scenario. And it's like all I can say personally, I'll let. Camille talked more about the strategic stuff is I just don't do that anymore. I don't deal with dangerous dog matters and I don't deal with um, you know suing veterinarians who do things badly unless I can think of a legal advantage that's bigger than that. And if I can't find it, then I won't get involved in it because it seems to me the issue is farm animals first and simple uh, foremost, that is the issue. And it seems that the direction of all animal interest groups need to be directed towards that. Now, Bob, how we can get the public to recognize that groups fighting against uh, the way in which agriculture is done or agriculture at large deserves more money than puppy shelters. That I haven't figured out yet because it seems to me that all we have to do is put a puppy on the side of our sign and we're, we're 10 times more likely to get more money like that. But, but I'll leave Camille to talk about the strategies.
2: <laughs> yeah, no partnerships are definitely key. Uh, and Bob Bob highlights the resource disparity, which is something I talk about a lot. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring. well, actually, no, I'm gonna save this stat for Q and A for the trivia question because it's one I bring up a lot, and I want to see if anyone's paying attention. But um, the organizations that market animal food products to try to sell it to us have marketing budgets that eclipse all the combined animal rights organizations' budgets in this country we're facing such a disparity of resources. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a slow building process. If we want to win, we have to go where the most suffering is to those industries that use the most animals. I think focusing on those bigger, broader picture issues rather than individual cases is key. And we need to build up a a war chest. We need resources so we can go to bat and combat those industries on their own terms uh, in the places where these fights are won, which is the halls of parliament and in the courts.
0: Camille, there was a good question on the chat forum, not on the Q&A, that I think is right up your alley. So I th- I thought you'd want to read it. It's from Rondi.
2: Oh, yeah. OK. I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Rondi says she's amazed that uh, the breadth of ballot initiatives that go before American voters, many of them are beneficial to animals. Other than referenda, Canadians don't seem to have similar direct democracy on specific issues. So what are ways that we can force a specific issue to a debate or a vote?
1: Oh, Should such I a good question.
0: I can that's hear a, the hooves.
1: That's a good question.
0: <laughs> I can hear that's the really hobby horse head. hooves coming. <laughs> All
1: right, I'm going to get on my political hobby
2: horse. Here it goes. Get ready. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so great question. And uh, I'm not usually jealous of people who live in the United States, but... There is one thing that I think would be fantastic for animals, and that's those ballot initiatives, the direct democracy measures that people in the states have access to. Um, That's how, you know, farmed animal reforms are being made in the states. Uh, They started off by bringing forward these ballot initiatives, asking voters in different states if they would agree that it's appropriate for animals to have more space. So banning battery cages, banning gestation crates for pigs, outlawing things like field crates. And voters always say Yes. Um, I don't think a ballot initiative giving more space to farmed animals is ever lost. And it's not just farmed animals who are the subject of ballot initiatives. There's many other ones affecting wild animals and all kinds of animals, too. So, yeah, I'm, I'm jealous because we don't really have anything comparable in Canada. British Columbia does have a citizen referendum initiative, but I've looked into this. To get a question on the ballot, you need of electors in all of the ridings in the country to sign a petition demanding it. Um, There have been numerous attempts to get issues on the ballot and only once has it ever worked and it was the HST increase. yeah, apparently they—they they, people were motivated enough to oppose HST increases to go to the polls on that question, but not for any other issues. So, it's a tough—it's a tough one. Uh, we don't have anything comparable here, and I think the best we can do is just reach out to our legislators and be very, very persistent with them.
0: I was waiting. It came. Here we go. I was go. waiting. It took a while. I was just going to say this. Like, I, this is like, I, my, the law professor in me is about to vomit, like internally, because what I'm about to say, because I hate it. I'm of the view that, like, in in a, in a world that I aspire to live in one day, but will unlikely to ever live in because I live in Canada, um, I hope that there is this thing called policy based, you know, lawmaking, and that we would one day be able to create enough of an incentive for the for the for the for the, the I don't know, for parliament to actually look to long-term strategic lawmaking. We don't live in that world. So I would suggest that what we should do is do what everybody else does in this world, wait for a terrible case, and then try to leverage that into a law reform change. But that's, unfortunately, if you look at the history of Canadian law, that is how most of the animal welfare changes have gotten made in this country. Like many of them, there's a bad case, and then you do something about it. Like, you know, sled dogs in BC. Okay, well, that's a terrible case. because There was a terrible killing, so now we need sled dog reform. Like, it's only, unfortunately, we don't look at things in terms of long-term structural decision-making, subject to what I'll talk about tomorrow with NFAC. And, and, And unfortunately, the only way I can say, like, how do we do this, wait for your bad case, and then try and leverage that bad case as a reason to do lawmaking, which is, you know, antithetical to everything I believe in, and yet that's the way things get done here.
1: I mean, sadly, that's how it works in the media as well. I I can't bring something to an editor that hasn't happened yet. So, you know, one of these issues, sled dogs, for example. You know, if I would have just come out of nowhere and said, "Hey, sled dogs are living this awful life," uh, you know, they're they're trained to 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 the ground all summer with you know no reprieve editors aren't going to care but once you know jenny mcqueen goes and walks on to a property and chains herself to a a kennel and they start getting footage of animal bones in the ground then i can then i can do something about it so unfortunately this seems to be the process in a lot of ways
0: terrible but true yeah
1: yeah
2: All right, so we're just going to maybe take one more question because I know we want to get to our trivia questions. Uh, So let me choose the last one here Um, from Ghislaine. Ghislaine asks, how many times do you encounter people who ultimately place the right of existence of humans as more important or more valuable or of superiority to that of animals? How do you deal with this topic in a judicial standpoint or in a court of law? Do you see it or use it as an opportunity to potentially educate?
0: It's a a really good question. And maybe I'll just answer it in the court of law or judicial standpoint. Um, If I go in a court of law and speak of animals as equivalent to humans, I'm not going to go anywhere in a hurry. Um, the law doesn't recognize that as a general uh, standpoint and we're still we're still at a point where we're trying to show that animals have interests that are capable of recognition. And I use it more as an opportunity to try and discuss those interests in a more positive way because the, the, the law, as most of you are law students here know, is an incremental place. The law does not like sudden revolutionary change and to go in and argue for that sudden revolutionary change is a quick way to lose. But that doesn't mean I have to give up on the issue. My goal is to educate judges about why animals do matter and why they should matter a hell of a lot more than they do now. But if I start challenging the superiority of humans from a legal standpoint, I don't think I'm going to get anywhere in a hurry and I'm going I'm I'm to ultimately harm the potential for the useful argument that I could otherwise make. So that's at least the way I feel about it when I deal with those cases.
2: Yeah, and I'll just add to that that um, not only is it difficult and impossible and strategically a mistake to sort of compare animals and humans in terms of a quality of existence before judges right now, but our law currently recognizes that the interests of humans to do basically anything that they want to do, short of sadistically abusing an animal, is outweighed by any suffering that that animal might experience. So let me give you an example. Um, Our animal cruelty offenses in this country, it's not an offense simply to abuse an animal. It's an offense to cause unnecessary suffering, pain, or injury to an animal. So when you look at that word unnecessary, you don't have to think very long before you start to wonder, well, if some suffering is unnecessary, what suffering is necessary? And who decides what's necessary? And the answer to that is... You know, more complicated than we have time to get into right now, and it, it is somewhat nuanced. And there, I think there's opportunities for lawyers to do creative things there, but prosecutors have interpreted that as meaning essentially that, and police, because they're the ones who decide what their charges would be laid. They've interpreted it as meaning that any human desire, short of like sadism, is more important than the interests of the animals. So I can't kick my dog just for fun. But if I wanted to kill my dog and eat my dog because I was hungry, that would be fine. And that goes obviously the same for farmed animals. So it's a big hill to climb. All right. Well, we've got 15 minutes left and I know we have a few trivia questions for you guys. So. Let's, let's see if you've been paying attention. Um, all right. So the way this is going to work is we're each going to ask a few questions, depending on how much time we have left. And, uh, you know, basically the first person who responds with the right answer um, wins. And if somebody gets a whole bunch of points at the end, maybe we'll send you a prize. So
0: yes, please. We need prizes. Pawn or t t-shirt? no, that's not possible.
1: <laughs> Where do we want people answering in the Q&A or in the chat, guys? Uh, You know, I think. Sure, we'll do the Q&A. Yeah, that works. All right. Who wants to go first? Peter. Peter, go. His will be the hardest for sure.
0: Really? All right. Am I going to get to do more than one? Cause I have one that I want to reserve for the end, but
1: uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. All right.
0: It's an animal treasure. Watch- Are you ready? This is going to be tough. I don't think anybody's going to get this. This was intended for Camille and I'm not even sure Camille's going to get it, but I will ask everybody. <laughs> you ready? So I am speaking tomorrow about our friends at NFAC, the National Farm Animal Care Council. Now this group was initiated in 2005. What was its direct predecessor? What is the name of the group Ooh. that preceded NFAC? I told you this is a tough Whoa. one. Oh
1: good one. <laughs> you
2: have, you a
1: have a to go
0: one. back a ways. <laughs> what is the group that preceded NFAC?
1: Damn. Damn. I like, I know I've read about this oh, before. I, know, I definitely know somewhere in the back of my brain. It's there.
0: It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I don't see anybody coming.
1: Yeah,
2: I don't see any answers coming I in yet. I could offer
0: a pawn order T-shirt for this because no <laughs> <get it>. so... <laughs> you
2: don't you don't have any pawn order T-shirts to give away. All right, if anybody gets this, we'll print one and send it.
0: <laughs> anybody?
2: Do you have any hints?
0: Um, I'll give you a hint. You ready? the The acronym says CAFERC.
2: <laughs> Canadian.
1: There you go. Farm.
0: Yeah. Oh no. No, no, no! You you are mistaken in thinking that animal would be at the core of an animal-based group. True,
2: agriculture, Canadian agriculture
1: agriculture. language, language, (laughs)
2: right? Canadian Agricultural Farming Resource Center.
0: It's not about farming. It's about
1: food. Oh, oh, Canadian
0: Agri-Food Research Council. That is the answer. That was the predecessor group to. And fact, there you go. That was my trivia wow. question. Wow.
2: Huh? Well, you are making this tough.
0: <laughs> Don't worry. My next ones will make you laugh. They're not as hard.
1: That's okay. A good You one. go,
0: you go. Give right. me one.
1: Just your turn. Okay. So uh, I'll start with my hardest one. Uh, Peter, I hope Peter did look at these answers. Um, Okay, so this is going to be easier if you were at last year's conference. Uh, So after last year's conference, I published an interview for McLean's magazine with Dr. Charu Chandraskara, I hope I got that right, who's also speaking this year at this year's conference uh, about what alliteratively named innovation that will one day help end the need for animal testing. Alliteratively named innovation. Wow, you guys are making this. That tough. is hard.
2: <laughs> but acronyms, names of organizations, alliteratively named
1: innovation.
0: Don't um, worry, my next ones are and order trivia. Much easier.
1: <laughs> oh, so Bob, Bob Clark is close. He's, oh. cl- he's close. That was one part of the story: organs on a chip. But this one is the other part what is the other part what comes is it like
0: you stumped both of us too it's
1: like a mannequin
2: human that like simulates the human body or something sort of that's sort of sort of it's a little it's a little more catchy though the name's a little more catchy darn have they named the mannequin like some person's name (laughs) (laughs) now you're getting carried away (laughs) i'm
0: lost
1: all right i give up all right, am I telling y'all? No one has it. Okay, it looks like it no one else is, is answering. Okay, it is disease in a dish. Oh! Ooh, how could we forget <laughs>
0: disease in a dish? D- oh,
1: disease oh, in a dish. Instead mind. of instead of shooting up animals with diseases, we can just grow the diseases right in a petri dish.
0: All right, I like this. Give me another one, Camille.
1: All right, here's one of mine. Now last I feel bad year,
0: I get that
2: one. <laughs> last year Parliament passed the Ending of the Captivity of Whales and Dolphins Act. Uh, when was the last time that before this came into place that parliament passed any serious new animal protection legislation? And I'm looking for like a range of dates would be fine, like a sort of a general description. You don't have to nail down the exact year, but if you get that too, that would be great.
0: All oh, right. I'm forgetting the exact year, but I know roughly I'm sending it to all panelists, not online.
2: And also to that's, our audience. That's not the that's correct way That's in. not
0: the correct. Yeah. that's.
2: Ghislaine says 1849. No, not quite. Not We've quite We've done although. a
0: little bit more since then, Ghislaine.
2: Although you're there like kind of close. She's I should close. know.
0: I should know because I cited it in uh, in DLW. But I know it's in the the decade that I sent you.
2: Well, anybody else want to weigh in on this before? Oh, two thousand five, two
0: 1949. No, definitely not. Oh, oh Ghislaine's getting closer.
2: Well. Uh, no, further. I'd argue
0: yeah. we're now gonna have a fight about what relevant right. means, but Google
2: I think we are. So it's a bit of a it's a question that's open to interpretation, but I'll give you my answer. So I'm gonna say eighteen ninety two, which <sighs> is when Parliament first introduced criminal code protections against animal cruelty. Um, they haven't passed anything new since then. They've made some updates to that but nothing serious and new has come since then. So that's my uh, So my I would
0: argue in the 1950s, changes were reasonably significant. They took out all the crappy language about mutilating and harming and menacing. Like that all got removed. And uh, I believe we said that in our factum, Camille, that it was the most significant, um, the most significant animal welfare amendments probably since 1892. So well
2: you're you're right you're you're talking about the 1955 56 reforms yeah, which reform were significant. Yeah. yeah, I think they took away language that was said something like Oh, you have to wantonly and, yeah, abuse was, an it animal. it was terrible. It, yeah. was,
0: it was terribly worse, but I will agree with you that did it do a lot to change things. Not really, but it it it, it at least made it possible to convict somebody whereas before it was like almost impossible.
2: Yeah. And I think that was significant. But the way I framed it in my mind is like that wasn't anything new. They didn't pass new legislation. They just sort of like tweaked existing stuff. So the whale stuff to me was like, new.
0: yeah, no, no question. The whale stuff, I, I agree with that. To me, the whale is bigger than the 1950s reforms. No question about it. Yeah. OK, let me ask mine. You ready? You're going to this one's going to make you laugh, if nothing else. In a very famous pawn order episode, we read a review, a one star review. And this person said the following. I wish I could listen to this podcast as the topics are very interesting. However, the host says blank over and over. It's irritating and difficult to listen to. What is blank?
1: Oh, I know the answer. Well, you should know the answer. (laughs) I
2: knew you would. And Kirsten got it. Kirsten got it. It's my name. Kirsten.
0: Kirsten. Camille, Camille, Camille.
2: (laughs) Winner, winner.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it was not an F bomb. It's Camille, Camille, Camille. And I'll tell you something. I think we laughed as much on that episode as any episode we've ever done.
2: Yeah, it was a good one. All right, Jess, what's your next one? Oh, mine's not nearly as fun as that
1: one. Okay, I'm not going to do, do my really, really depressing one. Okay, so um, we'll, we'll stick to the topic of uh, ending of Captivity of Whales and Dolphins Act. So also following last year's conference, I published a story for the National Observer about the ending of Captivity of Whales and Dolphins Act in Canada, noting that while laws and culture are changing here, what country has seen the number of marine parks actually triple since 2015? Oh, that's a good
2: one. I, I know, I know which one this was, or which I one this is. I
0: think I know, but I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, Riley has Guilherme it. Said, oh,
0: Riley oh, has it. Say, said Japan. That was gonna be my guess. For some reason, I was also thinking Mexico, but I, I, I'm guessing
1: Riley has it. It's China. Good yeah, job, China. Riley.
0: Yeah,
2: a good reminder that's um, okay.
0: Yeah, keep them, keep them
2: rolling. all right. Uh, okay. So this is something I talk about a lot. I pick on the dairy industry all the time. I don't know why. I guess they're just an easy target. But I'm wondering who can tell me, because I cite this stat a lot. Uh, what is the marketing budget of the dairy farmers of Canada? Now, this doesn't have to be their current budget, which probably no one knows. But this is a, a figure that they revealed during parliamentary testimony a few years ago. $600
0: dollars. I want to know it this one. It feels that way.
2: Bob says $800 million. Oh, Bob, you're so close. You're so close. $80 million,
0: mean, No, that's a pittance. Is
2: it $80 million? It's $80 million. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, and Jolene, got it, Jolene got, got it, too. Yeah, Jolene. No, Jolene. Um, Jolene got it. Yeah, Bob, you were off by a zero. $80 million. Holy moly. I know, that's what we're up against, folks. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, right. 80
0: million's a, a fair bit. Um, okay, I got another one. This is, again, Paul and Order related, and this one, you could have listened to two shows to get the answer to this. This is your hint what did i give our producer shannon milling for christmas 2019 what was her present and she received it i would add tofu no
2: i i did know the answer to this no it's not tofu although i'm sure shannon would have loved tofu the <laughs> only
0: reason i'm saying it is because i i said it twice so you could have picked this up on one of two episodes
1: we, we give each, each other reasons. christmas presents i'm excited
0: Oh, our Christmas episode is like the highlight of the year. I'm very, I'm already excited about it. it's like months Ooh. away Gotta
1: start thinking of what. no to one
0: knows what I gave our producer Shadon Millen. That means we do not have a lot Kirsten
2: of Kirsten does Kirsten. Kirsten, go. you're a super fan. Peter Son wished on Shannon. her wedding day. Oh, you're so sweet. Which she Which... got,
0: by the way, because of me.
2: <laughs> I'm glad that you're taking credit for the success of Shadon's wedding. That's
1: great, Peter. <laughs> I'm learning a lot
2: about Peter today.
1: <laughs> All right. Who's turn? My turn? Jess's turn? Oh, Just- God. Mine is so depressing after that. Gosh, Peter. Oh.
0: All right. Let's okay. finish with the light one. Do you have a light one?
1: Come on. I, I, I only have a terrible one. Yeah, me too. Go ahead, Jess. <laughs> okay. it's But it's, it's an easy one, so at least we have that. Okay. So in industry and media rhetoric, what particularly apathetic and inappropriate term is often used aside from euthanizing and culling to describe the mass killing of animals on farms. That is a depressing one, but good for
2: us all.
1: It's one we've we've been hearing a lot about lately in the media since the beginning of the pandemic. No, what they do on farms. You know what we've been doing since um, since there's been too many animals on farms. Yeah. How do we get rid of those unwanted excess animals? That's
0: what we're doing. And, oh. and
1: we're we're washing we're washing the language to make it sound like we're not trapping pigs in a shed and turning up the heat.
0: Inventory management. I like that. Oh. That's not the that's not the correct answer, but we should send so, that over to uh
1: <laughs> that might be even worse. Friends.
0: Yeah.
2: Culling, gassing, discarding, mur- murder. <laughs> That's murder a, good <laughs> a good one.
1: Oh, we're getting. Oh, there we Ma- go. Oh, Magdalena got it. Magdalena <laughs> got it. So yes, depopulating. That is a word I've come across a lot lately we're in my de-populating. work.
0: Depopulating.
1: It is probably one of the worst I've heard yet. It
0: is. It's crazy. <laughs> like imagine we use that for humans. You know what I mean? That's what COVID nineteen is depopulating birds. It's just. You, you, it's. It's terrible. Horrible. Oh, I think. It, oh, I think
1: horrible. it has. It has been used for humans in the past.
0: You know, Camille, I have one more and I just want to quickly throw it in because it's an easy one, but it is one that'll make you smile. But I want to see if any of our newbies, are you ready out there? Listen, all these students, do you know this? What is, because Camille knows this, but what is the original name for Animal Justice?
1: Ooh. I thought
0: that was a fun one. Do any of you guys know your history? What is the original name?
2: Anyone who was listening to the career panel a little while ago would know Originally
0: Animal Justice. No, it is not animal that.
1: defenders. I didn't
2: know what? that. No. No, no, I did mention that about an hour ago on the career panel. So is anybody who was, who was paying attention,
0: this is going I back. Think I this was it. when Camille was like a little law sprout. <laughs> I was still annoying old me. Like I was the same, but Camille.
2: <laughs> no, not the Animal Legal Defense Fund. That's a separate no, group in the states. No, that's
0: the U.S. We tried that, by the way, but that didn't go anywhere.
2: Animal Defense League. For another no. day. No, not the defense league either. All right, I think we got to get the answer because we've got to wrap up. We're getting close. It had
0: a, it had that great acronym, Camille. Law. What was it? Law.
2: It was Lawyers for Animal Welfare was the original name of Animal Justice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's a history lesson for you folks. All right. Well, we have reached the end of our Q and A and our trivia live special edition of Pawn Order. It has been such a pleasure been joining a blast. all of you. Uh, We're also reaching the end of the student days, So on behalf of the organizers, I'd love to thank all of you for participating and thank all of those who've been involved in presenting today. Thank Kaylee and Mackenzie once again for organizing and Samantha Skinner. And uh, we're really excited to host all of you again tomorrow. Um, Please watch for a follow up email where we will ask you for um, some feedback on this event. And if you have any, we'd love to hear it and make it even better next time. So thanks again, everyone, for joining. And thanks, Peter and Jess. It was great to be on, all three of us together. I like it. I like hey, it.
1: Thanks, See everyone. You
2: soon. Signing off.
0: We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today.
2: We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show.
0: And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us.
2: You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear.
0: You can find me on Twitter at, at @petersankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com.
2: And you can find me on Twitter at at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics.
0: And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's
2: I R O A R P O D.com. <sighs>